Welcome to episode 37 of Sass Mouth Dame's podcast. In Barbara Stanwyck's early pictures, when she launched into one of her get-outs, the name she gave the moment in a scene when she tore strips from a man, the right side of her mouth would curl up. Stanwyck's lip would peel back from her teeth in a crooked snarl. In Night Nurse, for instance, as she pulls back a fist to slug a man, the right side of her face winches up in the process. In Babyface, when she turns into an acetylene torch after her deadbeat father reprimands her for braining a lecher with a bottle of beer, once again you can see her mouth heave up to the right side. She hated it. On the set of Ladies of Leisure from 1930, her first picture with director Frank Capra, he noticed that one day on set she changed her natural performance. He could see her holding back and correcting herself. Stanwyck was too aware of her mannerisms. Something was lost. When he spoke to her about it, she explained that she had seen the rushes and disliked the way her mouth looked. Stanwyck recoiled from seeing her crooked snarl on the screen. When you see her mouth twist, though, you know the great floodgates of sass are about to open. It makes her look like an unvarnished dame from Brooklyn named Ruby Stevens, or that's probably how Stanwyck viewed her natural reaction. Capra didn't want her to be self-conscious about her looks. He took the most direct path to reversing her new technique. He told her not to watch the rushes. He quietly rehearsed with her and walked her through her marks on the set. Barbara Stanwyck gave it all, gave her best on the first take, he realized early on. She burst forth and let the wave of emotion crest on the set. She didn't improve with multiple takes. She only had so much emotional energy to expend, and like a battery would run down if overused. Capra may have succeeded in using his authority as a director to control how she emoted on film, but you can be sure that in the back of Stanwyck's mind, she worried over the snarl, the uneven gape of her mouth. By 1934 in Gambling Lady, she had mastered control over her mouth. The lopsided snarl disappears entirely. But the intensity of her emotional ebb and flow does not diminish one bit. Her delivery now adheres to photogenic results. Her mouth gains a new symmetry where neither side moves independently. Barbara Stanwyck was the queen of pre-codes. Stanwyck burned the marks on the floor that every other woman tried to match for intensity of delivery. Capra wasn't kidding when he called her the greatest emotional actress the screen has known. Gambling Lady was the last picture she made before the production code was enforced from the Hayes office starting in July 1934. Stanwyck's performance in Gambling Lady proves how much she learned and grew as an actor, not just in controlling her facial muscles. She's the successor to Garbo's gallantry, the type that she showcased in the character Diana Merrick in A Woman of Affairs from 1928. In that picture, Garbo's referred to as a gallant lady, and men call her a gentleman. That's what Barbara Stanwyck could be called as well as Lady Lee in Gambling Lady. Just like Garbo, Stanwyck plays a character who carries on with such dignity, despite the low opinion of men who are mistaken. 
Stanwyck's character Lady Lee embodies the ideals of sportsmanship, fair play, and honor. The whole plot turns on her character's ability to live by her word, even if it means she has to give up the man she loves or anything else. Lady inherited a resolute ethical code from her father, the last of the gentleman card sharps. He's played by Robert Barrett, who just so happened to play Barbara Stanwyck's father in Babyface. He's a far remove here from the man who trafficked his 14-year-old child into servicing men in a speakeasy. In this picture, he's so honorable that he would rather die than inconvenience his daughter. Lady's motto is, I figure there's only one way to play the game, and that's to play it straight. She applies it to the gaming table as well as mating rituals. When Joel McRae asks if she's holding out for marriage, she lays her cards on the table. When men think the worst of Barbara Stanwyck's character, she doesn't give out to them. Viewers are expecting and primed for her big get-out scenes, but they don't materialize. Stanwyck proves that she doesn't need to breathe fire to hit an emotional arc. In fact, it's more devastating when she keeps her mouth closed and simply absorbs their lousy estimations. Her character is so familiar with men who harbor low opinions that she doesn't waste her time arguing the contrary. She has to preserve her energy for bigger things. Lady Lee's moral compass remains set for true north, even when men assume the worst. Maybe because she handles large sums of money for a living, men think she only cares about money or that she can be bought. When she asks for a job playing cards for the syndicate, the mob boss agrees to take her on and pays her a stingy 10% of the winnings. But he fails to honor her code, which makes no allowance for cheats. He sends a so-called bodyguard along with Lady, a man strapped with hidden throwaway cards. The syndicate only cares about money, not fair shakes. C. Aubrey Smith plays Joel McRae's father. He's a big society guy who has a taste for gambling and knew Lady Lee's father and herself. He comes across as a total gent until he makes her the offer of $50,000 to walk away from his son. Lady fails to bristle. After she turns him down, he asks her to cut cards for her son, Gary. Lady begins to draw the line, but then she goes with the cards and wins the tall drink of man water in a gentleman's agreement. Later, though, C. Aubrey Smith is so taken with her that he gallops down a staircase to go and fetch Lady, not too shabby for a pensioner. When Gary attempts to forbid Lady from bailing out her friend Charlie, played by Pat O'Brien, she doesn't waste time denying his untoward suggestions about having Charlie as a pal. She just quietly gets the job done. Claire Dodd is perfectly cast as the heavy. She's like a blonde gal Patrick, at her best when playing a spoiled brat from society who is hell-bent on stealing another woman's man. When Claire Dodd swans into Lady's house and has the temerity to insult her, it's a wonder she leaves with any hair on her head. Before Claire Dodd's character, Sheila, takes her leave, she asks her, why don't you show the doctor those little card tricks, and outs Lady as a professional gambler. Rather than scalp the society dame or pummel her fists into that glossy face paint, Stanwyck's character takes the high road. She uses skill to put Sheila in her place. Lady invites Sheila to try her luck with the cards. 
The rich girl's stubborn, maybe because her position in society has lulled her into believing that luck is always on her side. By the end of the game, Stanwick piles all of Claire Dodd's jewels into a handkerchief. Outraged, the society dame is a sore loser, flummoxed in disbelief that it was for keeps. Later, after Lady has paid the bill for Charlie and Gary wants to know where she got the money, she snaps, I pawned Sheila's junk. That line lands right on the nose for me. It isn't meant to be a big deal, I suppose, but it says everything about Stanwyck's character. She may be dripping in finery and married to old money, but she doesn't attach any real value to it. People matter most to Lady Lee. She wants to help her friend out of a jam. Pat O'Brien is one of my favorite men in women's pictures. He's a mug. He knows he's a mug. But he's not only true blue, he rises above what we expect. He's utterly besotted with Lady and is gutted when she turns down his marriage proposal. Viewers have no doubt he would kill for her if necessary. Unfortunately, he can't compete with swoon merchant Joel McRae. He has the kind of hair you want to stick your hands in and teeth that indicate raw, rude health, square shoulders, the whole bit. He doesn't mind playing a rube, Joel McRae, like the scene where he allows two undercover policemen to tag along into the private gambling club that gets everyone pinched. But the best thing about Joel McRae is that he doesn't hog a scene. He always lets women shine, and he was content to let a lady take charge. Take the scene when Claire Dodd is nearly sitting in his lap at the party. He extricates himself from her company and says in an exaggerated comic voice, I feel my wife's eyes upon me, and I'll leave before the shooting starts. And then he goes directly over to where Stanwyck waits, visible steam emanating from her ears. He knows the score. Claire Dodd Sheila delivers a crack designed to rankle the new missus. She hands Joel McRae a ring and intimates that it was of the engagement variety that she returns by custom. Joel tells the fuming Barbara that it was just a gag. She finally realizes that society is just another racket, too. Warners gave Ori Kelly the green light to splash out on a wardrobe for Stanwyck. Ori Kelly incorporates metallic gold into many of her costumes to underscore Jennifer Lady Lee's affinity for Lady Luck. She's dripping in gold to remind the men at the tables that her last name really should be Luck rather than Lee. When she meets Joel McRae in one posh gaming room, she's wearing a gold lame tie over a black blouse with gold lame cuffs. Before they exit, she slips on a matching gold lame blazer. She's dressed like a solid gold coin. It's the best ensemble for a woman who plies her trade as a favorite of Lady Luck. She's money. Lady Lee has luck, talent, and integrity. Her character is a money magnet. Anytime she sits down with cards at a green felt tabletop, she amasses a pile of chips. She's level-headed about her card dealings. She's not greedy, and she's not romantic. The gold blazer says she's a businesswoman. She wears a formal evening attire to bet with men one night, but she's not there for them to ogle when she wears a black evening gown laced at the shoulders that has a plunging neckline. But underneath that, she wears a turtleneck ribbed for her pleasure. 
Stanwick's turtleneck under a fancy gown shows that she isn't dressed for seduction. She isn't there to get their attention. She's there to earn a living. She hasn't a minute to spare to worry about men having a peek down her dress. Like the rest of us, she's trying to repurpose something in her wardrobe by moderating the neckline, like when I button a cardigan over a low-cut dress for work. Only Barbara Stanwyck could wear a tiara to play poker and not look like she was giving you the high hat. She wears it with a gold capelet over a gown and it looks stunning. One scene makes her look as though she raided Marlena Dietrich's wardrobe for a duchess satin gown trimmed in marabou. She sports so many fur-trimmed sleeves, one of Ori Kelly's specialties. She even has an ermine bandolier with matching hand muff for one of her encounters with man-trap Claire Dodd. Barbara Stanwyck gambled on screen several times. I don't mean that metaphorically, like when she gambles that men are suckers, such as in Babyface or Double Indemnity, or when she gambles on a fresh start, such as the mail-order bride and the purchase price, or when she takes a dead woman's ring to assume a false identity and no man of her own. Or when she performed dangerous stunts, like in Forbidden or Forty Guns. I mean when she plays an actual gambler. After Gambling Lady, she played a card sharp in one of her most beloved pictures, The Lady Eve. While men were too busy drooling over a lady in a crop top, she empties their pockets over cards. Eve says, I need him like the axe needs the turkey, which is a tidy summary of the power dynamics she shares with bumbling Henry Fonda. In the opening of The Lady Gambles from 1949, a man calls her to kiss on a pair of dice for good luck. She bends over the calamity cubes and purses her lips with enough erotic heat to melt them to dust. She follows it up with a grimace that tells you everything you need to know about her character's gambling addiction. Look at the scheming face she makes when she hollows out a pack of cigarettes to disguise a camera so she can get pictures of the layout of a casino. Barbara Stanwyck always had a trick or two up her sleeve. Maybe that's why she was adept at playing someone who lives for a game of chance. In one of her many, many acting lessons she bestowed on her second husband, Robert Taylor, she told him that you have to keep giving the camera something new. Once you stop, you're through as an actor. The truth is that Barbara Stanwyck could have worn a blindfold to hit the marks in Gambling Lady, but she doesn't check out or phone it in. She's present in every moment. The double take she makes when she first claps eyes on Joel McRae, brilliant. The look she throws when she sees that Claire Dodd is nearly in Joel McRae's lap, you could use it to dust crops. If she learned how to be a gambler in three weeks, you know by this point in her career, at the end of the pre-code era, she was a complete professional and master of the craft. You can find Gambling Lady online, Google it with ok.ru, and it'll come up. I'll close the episode with a passage from Victoria Wilson's wonderful biography, Barbara Stanwyck, Steel True, 1907-1940. Barbara was still recuperating from her personal appearance tour. Her contract with Warner, extended because of the tour, was due to expire the third week in December. Harry Warner sent a telegram to Jack, Keep Stanwyck. These days cannot afford to let anybody go. Harry. 
Warner exercised its option and extended Barbara's contract for a year, paying her the contractually agreed upon $175,000, $3,500 a week for 50 weeks. For the final picture under her Warner's contract, Barbara accepted the lead in a three-generation theatrical story, Broadway and Back, with a script by Sheridan Gibney, in which she was to play the part of a young girl who ages to a grandmother. The studio thought the idea, a cavalcade of theaterdom, was worth the effort and expense, but it was concerned about the flatness of Gibney's treatment. Of concern as well was the similarity to Metro's March of Time, released as Broadway to Hollywood from a story and directed by Willard Mack. The picture followed a performing family from vaudeville's heyday to their Hollywood triumph. Barbara decided to turn down the Gibney script. Wallace next offered her Blood of China as the part of a Chinese girl. Three months later, the script was still being written. The studio took note of the many doctor pictures that had recently been made, Emergency Called, One Man's Journey, Aerosmith, The Crime of the Century, and offered Barbara its own medical story, a picture called Dr. Monica, that would go into production in early 1934. Barbara rejected it. Warner sent it to Kay Francis, who agreed to do it. Wallace looked over the gambling pictures around, including Street of Chance, No Man of Her Own, and Showboat, and offered Barbara Gambling Lady, based on a story by the screenwriter Doris Malloy. Malloy, even before writing the story, thought Barbara ideal for the part of Jennifer Lady Lee, a female card shark who goes in the most elegant society circles and wins on the up and up. Lady Lee is the daughter of a legendary straight-shooting gambler, the last of a dying breed. To write the story, Malloy had visited undercover games up and down the Pacific coast, talking with professional gamblers and race track habitués. Wallace budgeted the picture at $235,000 and assigned Henry Blank as its supervisor. Archie Mayo was the director. Wallace borrowed Joe McRae from RKO for four weeks to play opposite Barbara as the society boy she marries, and hired C. Aubrey Smith as McRae's elegant gambler father, who falls fast under Lady's spell. The studio used the contract feature star Pat O'Brien to co-star with McRae as Lady's longtime family pal who is in love with her and is gently rebuffed when she asks, when he asks Lady to marry him. He's enmeshed with a syndicate and plays a crooked game. Joel McRae was in demand at RKO. Gambling Lady was his sixth picture that year. McRae had been an extra in pictures and danced with Garbo in the single standard. Gloria Swanson had sent him home in a Rolls Royce one day and tested with him the next. He'd worked with Pickford and Colleen Moore, Lillian Gish, and Crawford, and had a bit in Lon Chaney's Only Talkie. His big break came when DeMille put the young actor under contract until the great showman went back to Paramount and turned him over to Metro. The 28-year-old actor had been featured in The Five O'Clock Girl with Marion Davies and The Single Standard with Garbo. He'd appeared opposite Constant Bennett, Born to Love, Dolores Del Rio, Bird of Paradise, and Irene Dunn, The Silver Cord. Louis B. Mayer let McRae's option lapse, and William Randolph Hearst wrote, Dear Louis, you just dropped an all-American boy who Miss Davies and I thought had great possibilities. I just want you to know that I don't approve of this action. In my business, running 300 newspapers and several other businesses, we never hire anyone without thinking that they have possibilities, and we never let them go until we've found out whether they do or not. 
Warner paid RKO $7,000 for McRae, $3,000 for its standard carrying charge, $1,000 a week for McRae himself. Aubrey Smith was paid $2,500 for two weeks of work, and Pat O'Brien, who unhappily agreed to share billing with McRae, got $7,500. Barbara was paid $50,000. For the part of Lady Lee, Barbara, who was neither a card player nor a gambler, had to learn how to deal and shuffle as a professional. A tutor was brought in, and in three weeks, she learned roulette, faro, craps, 21, and poker as if they were a natural part of who she was. She used her imaginative powers to get into the nature of the game and chose to play Lady Lee with the lightness, grace, and skill a master card player must have. Gambling Lady was the first picture in which Barbara's wardrobe by Ori Kelly was extensive and lavish. Kelly had designed costumes in New York for Schubert and George White Reviews before designing costumes for Warner Brothers. In 1932, beginning with So Big, in which she dressed Barbara in the plainest of hopsack. The clothes for ladies they talk about were almost as simple. For Babyface, Kelly's third picture with Barbara, the clothes were luxurious. With Gambling Lady, the wardrobe was extravagant. In the picture, Barbara wears, at various times, a chinchilla-trimmed cape, a beaded chiffon gown with scrolls of bugle beads, a white velvet nap of oriental cut, and a satin dress negligee, trimmed on the neckline with a fan-shaped train and bands of pink marabou. Kelly also designed for her a suit of wide whale cloth of cadet blue with royal blue georgette and gold threads in a horizontal stripe. She looked equally glamorous in Kelly's black crepe, five o'clock two-piece gown, and wedding dress of off-white penne velvet, with a cowl clipped at the neckline with brilliance. She wore the clothes well, except her waist, which became problematic in the noticeable width of her seat with her back to the camera. During the first days of shooting, a stills photographer was called in to take pictures of a scene at a gambling table. The photographer began with extras, then photographed Aubrey Smith, Barbara, and Pat O'Brien, all Warner players. McRae, on loan out, figured nobody would care if he was photographed and left for lunch. When he got back, Barbara said, where the hell were you for stills? Where the hell were you? The crew watched and listened, including Mayo and George Barnes, the cameraman. You think just because you're tan and pretty, you can come here and coast along? You think this is a picnic? When I was doing road shows, I'd be sweating so much I'd have to go in the men's room on the train and take my chances taking a shower so I'd be ready to go on and perform again when we got to the next town. I'd sleep sitting up in coaches. That's what you call a trooper. McRae apologized. Well then, get off your fat ass, California sunshine boy, and do it. Joel McRae was strong, beautiful, athletic, born and bred in Los Angeles. He'd grown up a California golden boy, delivering newspapers to Valentino, William S. Hart, Sesu Hayakawa, and Wallace Reed. He had attended Hollywood School for Girls with the daughters of Louis B. Mayer and Cecil B. DeMille, with classes outdoors under oak trees, even in a treehouse. Barbara could have had McRae fired from Gambling Lady, but instead she took the time to teach him what was right and what was expected of him. Afterward, they went into a scene in which Barbara as Lady tells McRae's father, Aubrey Smith, that she loves his son. Smith tells her that she wouldn't be happy with her pompous people and that his son won't fit in with the gangsters she goes around with. 
Barbara has a big scene in which she cries and says, just tell your son I don't love him and to hell with you and your class and your money and your breeding and your blue bloods. For the scene, Barbara was to say, I don't love you and I don't want to marry you. McCray was to kiss her and then they were to cut. Mayo said to McCray, now listen, when you grab her, you're going to lose her for life. You grab her with all the sincerity in the world and kiss her. Grab her by the ass and pull her to you so she knows it isn't your pocket knife you've got there. Make it the goddamnest kiss ever. Do everything but screw her. And if that's necessary, go ahead and do that. They did the scene. When it was time, McCray kissed Barbara, practically doing everything. The kiss went on for four and a half minutes. The electricians were falling down laughing. Finally, McCray said, isn't it cut? Barbara looked at him, laughed in his face and said, you son of a bitch. Then she grabbed him and kissed him right back in the same way, although the cameras had stopped running. That was the end of the war. McCray's wife, the actress Frances D., came to the set each day to watch her husband work and supervise his lovemaking, shouting, Bravo, good work, after McCray and Barbara's love scenes. McCray was six feet two inches to Barbara's delicate, slim five foot three. She was diminutive, but when it came to her work, she had power and size. She gave off an ease despite being in severe pain from her collapse on stage a month before in Boston. McCray was boisterous, carefree, to her cool self-possession. Barbara came to work one day with her back taped. Mayo asked her how she'd heard it. I fell down the stairs, she said. Mayo didn't say anything more about it. He figured that Faye had probably thrown her down a flight of stairs. This new accident didn't help the legs she'd sprained while filming Ever in My Heart. During production on Gambling Lady, Barbara was strapped into a board each night at home to relieve pressure on her hip and to prevent any movement as she slept. During the day, between story conferences, gown fittings, and shootings, she was put under quartz lights for four hours at a time to help lessen the pain. Thanks very much for listening. Join me next time when I'm joined by two librarians to talk about Betty Davis and Storm Center from 1956. Thanks very much.